This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, welcome to our three in the Freedom Hut today. We're joined by Dan Blumstein. He is a professor at the UCLA Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology and the UCLA Institute of the Environment and Sustainability. His seventh book is Ecotourism's Promise and Peril A Biological Evaluation. But we're going to talk about groundhogs because today is Groundhog Day. Uh, Professor Blumstein, great to have you. Thanks for having me. Uh, all right. So Punxsutawney Phil, he's known for his prognostication skills. My understanding is that the, the, the pugnacious groundhog from Punxsutawney, too much alliteration there, he came out today and saw his shadow. Where does all this come from? It comes from a, ultimately a pagan holiday in Europe that was um, translated into a a Catholic holiday, Candlemas Day. Um, Groundhog Day falls halfway between the depths of the winter and spring. So it's a midwinter holiday. It's a midwinter celebration. And in Europe, where it's cold and, and dark in the midwinter, people were looking for some prognostication about you know, whether spring would come sooner or not. And they looked to hibernating animals, um, hedgehogs there. When the Pennsylvania Dutch came over to, uh, the Germans came over to Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Dutch, they were looking for a similar sort of thing they could uh, capture, if you will, and uh, have some predictive ability so that the, the groundhog up in the Northeast filled the bill. Huh. Okay. And you study, tell us about groundhogs. You're like a, you're a groundhog expert, are you not? I'm an enthusiast. Uh, there are 15 different species of relatives of groundhogs. Groundhogs are one of the 15 species of marmots. Marmots are big ground squirrels. They live around the northern hemisphere. Many of them live in uh, alpine areas. And uh, these days I run a long-term study where the, the population and the individuals that we've been studying have been followed for uh, the past 55 years. Now, uh, woodchuck, groundhog, names for the same thing, right? Are there other things that people call them? Uh, woodchuck, groundhog, same thing for, for, the, for the marmota monax, one of these 15 species, the one that we celebrate today. Although in Alaska they, sell, they celebrate uh, hoary marmot day. Um, because they have hoary marmots up there. Maybe it's Alaska marmots. Anyway, they sell marmot day in Alaska. So a groundhog is a marmot, though? Groundhog is one of the species of marmots. Big ground squirrels. Okay, cool. Huh. They're big. How big can they get? I see them upstate at my parents' place sometimes running around, and they, and it's, you know, some of them, when they get moving, they, they've got some momentum going because they, be, uh, they can be robust fellows. Uh, how big can they get? Groundhogs are big. Groundhogs are big, 15 pounds, big ones, you know, in the, I mean, like a big fat cat. Um, uh, during the during the fall and winter, um, they put on a lot of weight. These are true hibernators. In fact, marmots are the the largest of the true hibernators. They have to eat during the summer, and the marmots I study at least double their weight. 
Um, then they hibernate. They shut down their metabolism, and they go into what's called deep torpor. During this time, they burn about a gram of fat a day, and then they wake up periodically to, to pee, um, or maybe they pee because they wake up. And this is one of those sort of paradoxes of hibernation physiology. Do you wake up to pee, or do you pee because you wake up? And, uh, you know, as I age as a man, I sort of change my mind on this one. But we don't really know. But we do know that when they have these periodic arousals over the winter, they burn a lot more um, fat, but then they're down for, you know, five, six, seven months uh, at a time. So it's, it's pretty cool. Neat Do you get to spend a lot of time with the actual groundhogs? I mean, are they, are they nice? Can they be friendly? If you're allowed to have one in a certain state or locality, would they actually make a decent pet or is that a terrible idea? Yeah, so, you know, um, I study them in the wild. I've kept, I, I, I and colleagues have borrowed some from the, from the field um, to hibernate and study hibernation physiology, but then we brought them back at the end of the winter and put them back where we got them. Um, some people keep them as pets. Uh, some species are more social than others. The groundhog is the least of the social of the species. They're species that live in around the northern hemisphere, as I said. So in Eurasia, they're much more social. And some of the other North American species are much more social as well. They live in big family groups, sort of like a soap opera. Um, and, you know, mothers live with daughters and uh, brothers stick around for sometimes many years and, and fathers and sometimes there's multiple mating. I mean, it's really, it's a sordid affair. Nonetheless, um, these very social ones, apparently they make nice pets. And, you know, I, I bump into people periodically that um, have had a marmot or a groundhog as a pet. So a prairie dog is a marmot and a relative of a groundhog, is that right? Prairie dogs are another group of species in this radiation of these ground-dwelling squirrels. They're not marmots, they're prairie dogs. Oh, so when marmots. I say marmot, okay. I say big cat-sized things. Prairie dogs are a little smaller. Prairie dogs oh, are very social. Okay. People keep those as pets. Yeah, yeah, and they all they they can make big. There's like uh, colonies of them, right, or whatever you call a prairie dog group. I don't we know. We used to have cool colonies, like. you know, over over you know hundreds of square miles, uh, you know, in the west. The the range of prairie dogs is drastically reduced because of urbanization, because of farming, because of hunting. Um, but um, they used to be very very widespread. But they can live in large colonies of you know hundreds to thousands of individuals, but previously millions of individuals. Would you tell me a bit about your uh, your your seventh book? You've written a lot of books. Ecotourism's Promise and Peril. Um, this is an edited book um, with some colleagues, and what we're doing is we got a bunch of biologists who study um, ecotourism, but also uh, sort of any predator behavior and how animals respond to people. Uh, in a bunch of different contexts and different species. So we have a chapter on marine mammal tourism. We have a chapter on penguin tourism, on bird tourism, and how birds might respond to, to humans. It's a biological evaluation. I mean, we all love ecotourism. Uh, we all go out and are, are happy to see animals in nature. But uh, the question is, how, what are the negative consequences of this, and what then should best practice be to um, manage those various risks of, of, of are there any species in particular of mammal that we feel like people go to visit them they may be doing more harm than they realize well it sort of depends and it's all very context specific so you know riding elephants is that a good thing or a bad thing maybe it's not such a good thing uh trip advisor i believe doesn't allow you to book trips to ride elephants anymore uh but maybe preserving elephants and having elephant ecotourism in, pla in places where maybe people have no other options to, to make money um, is a good thing. So it's, it's actually hard. We're trying to get the biology out there, and we're trying to sort of say, well, here are the biological costs, but those costs will have to be counterbalanced against social and societal benefits. Huh. And what are the classes, if I may ask, that you teach out at UCLA? You've got an interesting line of, uh, interesting line of study you have. 
I teach an animal behavior course, uh, Introduction to Behavior and Ecology. I teach a, I've taught in the past and will be teaching again an ecological ethics course. I teach a field biology course that gets undergraduates um, out into the field. Our students are great, um, but they learn, they, they consume knowledge. So in this field biology course, we get them to create knowledge and really learn by doing. And a whole bunch of these well, projects, 80% get published. It's good stuff. Tell me about the uh, the animal animal behavior class. Is that is that sort of like uh, I mean, to an outsider, it's you know, knowing when the tiger is about to jump at you out of the tall grass, right? But what kind of stuff do you study? Well, I do. I study any predator behavior and social behavior, but you know, oh, you do? Like, okay, yeah. yeah so academic, that makes sense. I'm interested in that. I, I want to know about when tigers are jumping at me too. Um, but I mean, the whole academic study of behavior is one of why do we see differences? Why do animals do different things? Why do birds sing? Why do some birds sing and not others not sing? Why do we see different mating systems? And then a whole line of my research takes this knowledge about this diversity of behavior we see. What are the ecological conditions under which behaving a certain way might be good or bad? And then translates that and says, okay, well, how does this influence um, the, uh, the ability of a population to persist or grow? Or what happens when we start urbanizing areas? Or how can we recover species from extinction by translocating them, moving them back into areas? And how does behavior, knowledge of behavior, influence this? Hmm. That's some cool stuff. Where can people, do you have some lectures online, or where should people go for your, for your work? Uh, my website's online, and uh, papers are there to download, and there's some videos and interviews and stuff like that. Um, so, uh, what is the, what yeah. is the website, Professor Blumstein? Uh, if you Google marmots and Blumstein, you'll find me. But it's, uh, <laughs> right. I mean, I can spell it out if you'd like. No, no, no. We could we, we, that that'll do. Everybody could hear it now live, and they'll hear it on the podcast too. Professor yeah. Blumstein of UCLA, um, thank you for the uh, info on groundhogs and everything else. We appreciate it. Appreciate you coming by. Thanks for having me. Uh, phone lines are open, guys. Eight 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 nine hundred three three nine three. We'll be back right after the break. This is the Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. The Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, we've got some calls up. David in Texas. You're on the Buck Sexton Show. Welcome. Hey, Buck. Shields high. Hey, Shields high, David. Hey, I wanted to kind of get, uh, you know, your opinion on this, but I think people, when they look at Trump, they may be kind of looking at him from the wrong point of view. Um, you know, the way he does things with his executive orders and you know, the people that he's bringing into his cabinet and, you know, even the uh, executive order on immigration. Um, he's a businessman. He's not a politician. He's not going to act like a politician. You know, I'm a VP of a, an investment group. We do acquisitions and we're reorganizations from time to time. And it's not our job to go in there and act like the last owner of the company. It's our job to inject our people 
get our culture going as fast as we can and start knocking down, you know, low-hanging fruit. So, you know, when I see the way he's acting, I just see him acting like the CEO of a company, not necessarily a, you know, politician that's really concerned about what others think. I mean, hell, he's got a mandate, you know, because people put him in office and he's taking care of business. I think I think you're you're uh, right on target with this. I think a lot of people across the country, even those who weren't necessarily Trump voters, are willing to look at this and say, "Okay, how's he doing? Is he making improvements uh, to the government, to the system, to governing in general? Is he keeping his promises?" It's it's all really it should be judged by execution and results. It shouldn't be this uh, this constant. You know, back and forth over the tone and the specific verbiage of every little thing that he says. I, I think a lot of people have gotten to a point where they don't really care about that. And if Trump is able to get it done, that's what's going to matter. Yeah. I, you know what I mean? I think that, you know, yeah, if, if he's a good CEO, he's going to keep the scorecard of himself. And he's going to look at that every morning when he gets out of bed and determine whether he's doing a good job or not. He's not going to get up and say, hey, am I a good politician or did I do what I was mandated to do, you know? Yeah, no, I to- look, I totally totally agree with you. And uh, I think that's um, I think that's the way that, you know, I, that's the way I'm going to be judging Trump's administration, and I think a lot of others are following suit too because when you, when you look at this, okay, so, you know, Bush, Obama, they... they they did things the way that they were largely expected to as presidents, right? And I, I think we could, obviously, I, I think Bush was, well, he's much more ideologically in line with me than Obama is, but even as a person, I, I find it easier to look at the good intentions of Bush, uh, you know, over the sort of social justice proclivities of the Obama administration. But, you know, they both, they did it the way the press wanted them to, more so Obama than Bush. What does that get us? What does it really matter? Uh, I hear I hear a lot of whining about the dignity of the office all the time, and I want to say, you know, Bill Clinton, not exactly a dignity of the office enhancer. Uh, we, we we're we're at a point now where I think we're sick of fighting over that. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know, there is something to be said for the dignity of the office. I mean, there are some moments where I, you know, I cringe a little bit and. You can see, you know, some awkwardness and some of the things that he says and does. I'm, I'm not saying, yeah, I mean, David, I hear, I'm not saying throw that out the window and it doesn't matter. I just mean, you know, are we going to fight? We're going to fight about this is the way Trump is. We're going to we're going to complain about this every day. We're going to get you know, I mean, like at some point. It's just well, what what are we doing? I mean, let's see what the guy does. This is the way that he speaks. This is the way that he tweets. This is who he is. He's the president. I just don't think it's worthwhile to spend to spin our wheels too much over He's got his own way of doing things. Uh, yeah, you know, and a lot yeah. of a lot of politicians have that flexibility where they can, you know, they're like a, a goose. They wake up in a new city every day. I mean, Trump's been the same since day one. You know, he's just Trump. So, yeah, you know, at least we know what to expect when we wake up in the morning. Yeah, people accept his his. His shortcomings are part of the package, I, I suppose, might be the best way I could put it. And, and a lot of a lot of those out there, I think, see that and think about it, and they're like, all right, you know, I'm on board. Anyway, David in Texas, man, Shields High, thank you for calling in. I'm you trying to avoid because I'm still... 
Thank you very much. Um, appreciate it. Uh, I'm trying to avoid sounding like the guy. Uh, I'm sorry. What do you say, uh, Shimon? It's okay. Oh, okay. Um, a, a lot of uh, I'm trying to make sure I don't sound like the guy from Best in Show, who's the hostage negotiator. I don't know if any of you know what I'm talking about, but uh, the the character who has the Nor Norwich Terrier. Uh, with his wife goes to visit his wife Cookie, I think is her name. Goes to Best in Show is a fantastic movie, and he goes to visit some friend of hers, and she's a she has a um, to put it delicately a checkered past, and she goes to see a guy, and it's like an ex boyfriend of her, an ex fling of hers, and it's very if you haven't seen Best in Show, it's a great movie. It's a very very funny movie, but the guy is also a hostage negotiator, and he's sitting over dinner and. Before they get into some awkward discussion about the other guy's wife, uh, he goes, well, let me tell you, there's a secret here. They all jump. <laughs> I'm just like, he's so dark. And even you've got to watch the scene to see, you know, to see how this goes down. But he's obviously the worst hostage negotiator ever. And he actually tries to negotiate his son out of a tree uh, as he goes, this is what I do, honey. And he goes, I'm going to jab your, th your eye out with my thumb. So he's clearly the whole bit is that he's the worst hostage negotiator uh, you could ever you could ever find. But I'm trying not to fall into that where I'm like, yeah, you know, you know, what could you do, everybody? The world's got a lot of problems. You know, when you've been when you've been sick for a solid week, um, it's you start to think in those terms. You're like, what are you going to do? You know, eh, life. It's difficult. I'm just kidding. I'm going to be all rays of sunshine tomorrow. I'll be feeling much better, too. It's going to be awesome. Uh, Corey in Ohio. You're on the Buck Sexton show. Welcome. Oh, we lost Corey. My bad. Steve in, where's Steve from? Steve in Michigan. You're on the Bucks Action Show. Good to have you. Hey, thanks, Buck. Uh, congratulations on your soon-to-be new gig coming up, too, and all. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I don't think anybody's really addressed this, but after the rent-a-mobs there over the weekend in these airports and all, bear in mind, just a few weeks ago in Fort Lauderdale in the baggage claim area, this piece of you know what gets off an airplane and shoots up a bunch of people and all that you heard was all this crying about lack of airport security and baggage claim and anybody can walk in there and do what they did and blah 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 and i just and again nobody seems to address this how were these rent mobs allowed inside the airport and or outside the airport causing traffic snarls i mean these they're major thoroughfares, I mean, it'd be like getting on a train and doing the same thing or stopping trains on the tracks and all that kind of stuff. I mean, how did this happen? <laughs> well, I, I mean, if it's at the if it's at the uh, the arrivals area, can anybody kind of show up there? I, that's. Yeah, where, well, where, I guess where it it... yeah, well, the depart arrivals there and baggage claim was where this guy in at yeah, baggage claim there. arrivals. Right, right. No, but. I mean, this is a mob. I mean, good Lord, if something bad would have happened, I mean, who would have taken the blame for that one? You know, Pocahontas and his and a red mob out there. I mean, these airports, it's tough enough to get through. You've flown enough. I've, I finally stopped flying after 09. I'd had enough of it. And uh, it just, golly, it just it, it amazes me that they didn't just groom these people out of there or not even allow them into the airport without having at least some airport business there, I guess, would be, a, you know, picking up somebody or whatever. 
Well, you know, they run into the, they if they start trying to remove people, they run into the whole First Amendment issue. And if it's a public space, you know, it's tough. It's tough. I uh, also what do these people think they're really accomplishing by mobbing these airports in this way. But, you know, it's it's fun in social justice warrior. It's it's the game you get to play where it's always fun for you and somebody else is always taking care of your mess. Right. So it's it's uh, all about all about virtue signaling all the time. Uh, but Steve, man, good to uh, good to have you on. Thank you for calling and appreciate the uh, vocal backup today with many calls from you and from others. Uh, Shields high. Uh, we got to talk about Iran. I think coming up here, we've got something something brewing there in the news that I want to make sure we all hit together. And uh, then we're going to be closing up the show for today. And I'll be back tomorrow, and hopefully my voice and everything else will be back too. So, whew, it's a tough one today, team. Um, back in a few minutes. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Uh, team, we're going to get into a buck brief now. Shimon, hit it, please, when you get a second. Do we have a buck brief? Oh, we're getting it. It's coming. Hold on. Fingers crossed, everybody. Let's give it a second. This is a lot of buildup for a buck brief. They've heard it before. Do you want to just bag it? We can just bag it. We could say forget it. Okay, we're going to say forget it. We can't get the buck reef. We're joined now by Fred Flights. He's a former CIA analyst, a senior fellow with the Center for Security Policy, which is a Washington, D.C.-based think tank, and he's the author of the new book, Obama Bomb, A Dangerous and Growing National Security Fraud. Uh, Fred, great to have you. Thanks for calling in. Hey, Buck, good to be here. So Iran tested a nuclear-capable cruise missile, according to uh, Reuters here. What's, what's going on? Bring us up to speed on all things Iran. Well, Iran has been, its behavior has grown significantly worse since this uh, breakthrough nuclear agreement, supposedly breakthrough nuclear agreement, was announced by President Obama in July 2015. Remember, this agreement was supposed to make Iran our friend and improve Iranian behavior and reduce the threat from Iran's nuclear program. None of that was true, and Iran's behavior actually grew worse. What's interesting now is that the Iranian regime, after just ignoring Obama. They're now testing the Trump regime, and the Trump regime has indicated they're not going to stand for it. What do you think the Trump response, the Trump team response should be to these latest Iranian actions? Well, you know, I've been watching MSNBC and CNN. I mean, I forced myself to watch all this drivel because I want to be well-informed. And they're annoyed because they don't know what's going to happen. And I don't know. And the Iranians don't know. And that's good. The fact is, everything's on the table. With Obama, we knew all kinds of things weren't on the table. We knew he wasn't going to do anything militarily. He wasn't going to increase sanctions. He was so predictable, which is why the world walked all over Barack Obama. With Trump, we don't know. Is he going to authorize maybe airstrikes against the sites where these missiles are are being launched from? Missiles were launched against ships uh, in, in the Red Sea. Uh, against U.S. ships on one occasion, against UAE ships on another occasion. Maybe we're going to take out those sites. I don't know. 
But I have to tell you that the perception of American weakness, we know, is inherently destabilizing and led to the current disaster situation in the Middle East. And I think the perception of American strength under Trump is going to improve international security. Now, you served, uh, I see here in your bio, for 25 years at the CIA, DIA, State Department, House Intelligence Committee staff. So you've been all over the the community, uh, the IC, as people broadly term it. There's this narrative out there, there's a feud going on between Trump and the IC. I've been trying to tell people that this is really actually just a feud between Trump and some very senior appointees who like to leak things about the Trump administration to the press and that has nothing to do with the rank-and-file members of the IC. But I do sense that there are some uh, some bureaucrats, not even necessarily on the intelligence community side of things, that are actively anti-Trump and seeking to undermine the administration. I wanted your, your take on, on all of that. Well, I mean, from my time in government, I know that career federal employees don't like Republicans. Not all of them, but quite a few of them. We also know that uh, what are the professors like in the national relations departments? They're liberals, and, and these people tend to find jobs in foreign relations positions. We know there's a terrible temptation by State Department and CIA people to side with the fashionable foreign policy establishment because they like to work for Harvard someday and they like to teach. So Trump comes in at a disadvantage. The fact that he's been so strong on issues such as radical Islam really has made him an enemy of many at the CIA and at the State Department. I don't think the, most career, careers are against him, but I think a lot of the career uh, senior managers who were promoted by the Obama administration and the CIA and other organizations, they are determined to stop Trump, and I think that it's going to take a great deal of leadership to uh, put things in order. Other than Bannon, Trump's senior advisor, who Time Magazine now is – uh, has on its cover. Uh, you have a lot of the the Democrats in the left, particularly, uh, let's say, energized about the role of General Flynn as national security advisor. He's just said that Iran is on notice after this most recent missile test. Well, what do you what do you think about Flynn in this role? There's is is there a lot of exaggeration about his, uh, let's say bureaucratic shortcomings uh, are you worried about his temperament his ties to russia or do you think that's a lot of a lot of hoopla i think the temperament thing was invented by people who don't like flynn flynn didn't like the fact that dia analysis of isis and iraq was being distorted to make it look like obama policies were succeeding i think that he had the right uh, approach there uh, i don't have a problem that trump has people on his team that want to try to find a way to be tough with Russia and to find a way to also cooperate with it. After all, it has the largest nuclear stockpile on Earth. I don't think Flynn's uh, uh, judgment has been clouded because he's had interactions with Russia today. He's done a lot of international TV um, interviews. We may have a situation here where we will have a very powerful NSC like we did in the days of Henry Kissinger. And that doesn't mean that Reggie Tillerson won't be active in running foreign policy, but I think Flynn will be very, very prominent. Um, so you think Flynn will be doing a uh, – Flynn so far can be has been doing a pretty good job. Uh, what, it was your, uh, what was your sense of the Yemen raid? I'm seeing now that it's, it's been said that the Obama administration delayed on this one. There were some civilians that were killed in the crossfire. This was going after al-Qaeda targets in Yemen. We know al-Qaeda in Yemen has been particularly active in external plotting going back for many years, external plotting against the U.S. and against uh, Western allies. 
So this was a raid that, what, the Obama administration just put on hold? Does it seem like it came off, um, that, that there are just risks inherent in these things? What was your What was your sense of it? Well, a lot in the media are saying that the Trump administration thought this up and there were problems and they moved too hastily. That's not the case. This particular raid had been planned a long time ago and it was sitting on the shelf. The Trump administration decided to pursue it. And I think it reflects the more aggressive approach they're going to take. ISIS is not the only radical Islamist threat on earth. Al-Qaeda is still a problem, especially Al-Qaeda in the AQAP, which is present in Yemen. Um, and I, I just think we're going to see more raids like this. And what are you putting at the at the top of the national security challenges that are confronting the the Trump team right now? What what for you is foremost in your mind? Well, I mean, Trump wants to wants to destroy ISIS and take out radical Islam. But I think before we do that, and 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 I mean, you know this well from your time in government. There has to be an internal policy process to look at the intelligence, to assess the threat, to consult with our allies, and to come up with a strategy for, to defeat ISIS and to, to restore stability in the Middle East that gives Trump a range of options to, to see how much risk he's prepared to take. He doesn't want to send U.S. troops into Syria and Iraq. Okay. But I think we have to look at all the various options and how to deal with this, various options on preparing uh, alliances, hopefully with NATO, and see where we are. All right. And uh, what about the NSC reorg, by the way? That got a lot of uh, play earlier in the week. It was surprising the role that Bannon's playing. Uh, I'm happy that the CIA director will again be present as a member of the NSC. He, he, uh, he was not present in, under the last administration. It is my hope that uh, CIA will play a primary role there. And I'm sure I hope you agree with me that it's time to get rid of the director of national intelligence and make the CIA, once again, the, the director, uh, basically make the CIA director the director of central intelligence, get rid of the uh, uh, um, uh, the DNI. Yeah, I've thought that since I worked there in 2000, since I started working there in 2005. It's <laughs> like, what is what is this? The amount of energy, if people, if the taxpayer only knew the amount of energy that was put into the bureaucratic turf battles and infighting between the various three-letter agencies, including some of the newest ones, and then you throw NCTC in there, and it's just complete nonsense. Yeah, enormous duplication and waste, and it's made intelligence much less effective and much more risk-averse. Yeah, I, I have to, I'm wondering why it is that... Oh, but the, uh, the other part of this, right, was that they weren't going to have the DNI and the chairman of the JCS in the... What was it? The, in the, the principal's committee of the NSC or the deputy committee, uh, committee of the NSC? They changed the structure of it somehow, Media all of a sudden was Googling this, making a big deal of it. Doesn't seem to me like uh, this has legs, but I don't know. What do you think? Well, the De Secretary of Defense is already there. I, I don't know why they just made that decision on the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who's supposed to come as needed. I think I don't know why the DNI would be there. I think the CIA director should be there as the director of Central Intelligence. Um, but I think there will be some adjustments made uh, to this whole thing. So far, how would you grade the Trump administration on its uh, on its on its picks and its posture, at least on national security? I think the picks were extraordinary, especially at defense and homeland security and CIA. Uh, I, I think it, I mean they were fab they were fabulous choices, and I think um, it's a positive trend line. I think there were some mistakes coming in, but this is such a a, a, a revolution 
with this group of people from outside the government completely changing policies that had been so far to the left. I, I think there were going to be some missteps, and I, I think that they're going to be taken care of fairly quickly. All right. We'll have to see how this shakes out. Fred Flights is a former CIA analyst, a senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy. He's at Fred Flights on Twitter. Fred, really appreciate you joining us. Uh, sorry, I, I'm suffering from the flu, so I'm a little under the weather, but uh, would love to have you back another time soon. Nice talk to you. Thanks. Uh, team, phone lines are open, 888-900-3393. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show. Well, team, thank you for uh, sticking with me today while I was making a, a comeback here. It's still, I'm still a little shaky, and given that I've taken on a whole new plate of responsibility starting next week, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be quite a ride. It's going to be a busy, a busy time for the for the Buckman here. I, I had, I think, at least two requests, originally three. To do Fox News today, and I just had to be like, "No, sorry, guys, I'm I'm in no shape for Fox News right now, unfortunately." But uh, hopefully Monday I'll be good to go. Um, so I've got I've got plans on all of that, and um, I would really like as many of you as possible to uh, to join me starting Monday six to nine as well. That'd be great. Uh, you can also just uh, download the podcast. I'll have more instructions for you and details and all that. Uh, as as that gets closer or as it happens, I suppose, some of it will be uh, figuring it out as, as we go. Um, but those of you who are listening to the show who are feeling pretty good today, have your health, man, you've got a lot, let me tell you. Because when you are really knocked out of it, uh, it, is, it is tough. It is tough to get it all done when you are feeling physically uh, like you're, you're struggling a lot. I see here that uh, Bill Gates, to finish this off today, Bill Gates is going to be worth, wait, no way, is this really, oh, I guess so. Microsoft founder Bill Gates is set to become the world's first trillionaire, despite his efforts to give this away. He's going to be a trillionaire within 25 years. I have to say, I, I don't, how hard is it really to give away money? <laughs> I feel like I give away money and I don't even want to give away money. Um, so... I don't really understand why that's not something that's easy to do. <laughs> I'm giving, I don't want, I, I wish I, when I say give away money, I'm not talking about the charity, I mean like spending money. But I feel like it's always, um, you know, I feel like it's always possible to find a way, to, you know, just write a, write a $100 billion check to the Red Cross, right? Well, how hard is this? I don't know. It seems to me like a, a problem that can't really be a problem. Uh, right now, Bill Gates is worth seventy-five billion dollars. Uh, that's a lot of that's a lot of money. That's true for sure. That's that's some cash. Number two this is all according to the Sun. Uh, the Zara owner, I think he's Spanish. Of uh, his name is Amancio Amancio Ortega is worth fifty-three billion. Warren Buffett is worth sixty billion. Carlos Slim is worth fifty billion. Jeff Be Bezos is worth forty-five billion. Zuckerberg is right right there also at forty-five billion. So is Larry Ellison. Bloomberg's at, wow, Bloomberg's $40 billion? 
It's amazing. It's amazing to me that that guy's worth $40 billion and would want to spend, um, would want to spend his time as mayor of New York City, a, a job that even as a born and raised New Yorker, I'm not sure I'd want to have. But yeah, these guys, the, the amount of money they have put together and the, the way that wealth now, if you're truly wealthy in this globally elite way, uh, the mechanisms you have at your disposal, the things you can do, it's, it is pretty incredible. Uh, but anyway, Bill Gates, they say he's, I don't know, how is he going to be a trillion? He's only 75 billion. He's not going to make you a trillion dollars. This is nonsense. Uh, I, I, I object, Your Honor. Um, this, of course, also ties into a lot of the you know, uh, social justice warrior stuff you're going to see that is uh, they'll, they'll look at the top 100 richest people in the world and say they have more wealth than the I forget what the statistic is, but I think it's the top 50 or top 100 richest have more wealth than the next two or three billion. It's considerable, but that's because a large portion of the world is still completely impoverished and it has effectively no assets. So I don't know. It's on days like today where I'm like, you know, it'd be nice to just have like a team of people that are paid to wait on me hand and foot while I get better. I don't have to worry about anything. Instead, I've got a jackhammer out my window. I'm going to be doing like a bajillion hours of radio a day starting next week, and I'm hoping I don't pass out and smack my face on my desk during one of these shows. Um, but I won't. You know why? Because of all you. Because you prop me up. You propel me forward. You are my squad, my team, my crew. And uh, that's why I'm back here today on the show, because I still am having a rough one. But I love all of you, so I had to come hang out, and I'll be back tomorrow. Um, as always, team, Shield Tide. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.